Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Not Just Paleo, wherever you are in the world listening to this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are in very exciting times, you could call it right now. So thank you for taking the time to tune in and listen to this show. Uh, Today, we're actually speaking with a guy you may have heard a couple episodes back, John Brisson of the Bulletproof Forum, who is an expert on digestive health and who has tried to take his own son's health problems into his own hands with the use of the Bulletproof slash Paleo diet and a couple other things. We got into that on the other episode if you want to hear that more in depth. But today we're talking about a pretty good-sized list of things ranging from uh, our other guest who's on the call with us, Jason Hooper from the Bulletproof Forum. He talks about his transition from vegan to paleo and his role as a teacher and what he sees in the education system. We talk about where to get health information when you want to do your own research on studies. We talk about SIBO, which is an intestinal problem and how the elimination of butter short-term may help you if you are suffering from some type of digestive issue. Uh, We talk about probiotics and how they may make your digestion problems worse if you are having some type of uh, problem. We talk about FODMAPs and how they play a role in your gut health, how berries always prevail as the preferred fruit, and eventually we get back to the Bulletproof Day. And we talk about what the Bulletproof Day looks like, which is very similar and almost exactly what a Paleo Day would be, except you're mostly cooking things at a lower temperature to try to reduce the oxidation of the fats, which happens when you cook on too high of heat. So we do get into that a little bit on this episode. But I do want to remind you all that this is a donor-supported show, and I would definitely appreciate if you would go to the right side of the website on notjustpaleo.com and click on the Contribute button, and you could donate as much as you'd like. You could donate a dollar, which would be awesome if all the listeners... Um, including you, donated $1, this show would have enough money to run itself for the rest of the year. So I would love if you just took five minutes out of your day just to do that. Uh, It might be a little bit of a hassle to log into PayPal or whatever it may be, but if you do that, I'd be forever grateful because this show is on a very good path and I want it to continue and that does take a large amount of upkeep when it comes to all these bills so thank you very much for your support and uh, we'll get into this show thanks for listening and please leave a review on iTunes also if you have a couple minutes take care and email me with any questions or comments or concerns at evan evan at notjustpaleo.com y'all have a good one take care of yourself and stay positive I'm I'm here with John, a.k.a. Ron Swanson, and Jason Hooper from the Bulletproof Forum today, and Titus from the Bulletproof Forum also introduced me to these guys, and we're going to be getting into some specific questions from the forum specifically, a little bit of each of their histories into loving and studying all these different topics that we're going to cover today, and then we're going to tell you why you should join the forum and the strength of the form is growing since I've got on it. So, uh, John and Jason, welcome to the show, first off. Thank you, Evan. Hey, how's it going, Evan? It's going good. Well, yeah, tell us about the Bulletproof Forum and how you guys started participating and researching and becoming so involved with uh, helping people with nutritional supplements and quality. Well, um, I uh, 
got into the bulletproof forums um, because I was trying to switch from a raw vegan diet to a paleo diet, and that did not go well. Um, and so my pretty much my first couple posts were pretty pathetic. They were just like, help me, I'm dying. And, and people were like, oh, well, you, you know, your, your gallbladder is not used to all the extra fat and stuff. And so, um, you know, I got some help for, from some people and I started switching to a, a, better, uh, a better diet and getting better nutrition in my body. And like I started getting a noticeable, uh, like noticeable health benefits from it and noticeable uh, increase in, in, in brain performance. And so, I had like all this extra energy, all this extra stuff. And I'm like, what am I going to do with all this extra stuff? And so I just put it back into the forums and I just started uh, researching and, and looking stuff up, answering questions and, and doing all that kind of stuff. I just put it right back in. So that's, that's my story. Awesome. Yeah. How, how long did it take to, to adjust from, uh, did you say a raw vegan to paleo? Yeah. How long did yeah. it take? For um, you? Well, it, it took uh, probably a couple weeks, um, and there was some other stuff that you know. There's some stuff that I had to figure out, even with like the extra digestive enzymes and, and all this other stuff. You know, the the extra um, hydrochloric acid and, and stuff that I was taking to help the digestion. It still it still took a little while. Um, I you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably ease into it a little bit more by just taking certain food items and replacing like the, I guess the non paleo items with, uh, more paleo items. So you can like take out the soy stuff and, and replace it with, you know, extra, extra saturated fats or avocados or something, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just trying to make this sudden like shock to your system by just completely changing your macronutrient ratio. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of debate. Uh, almost every person that comes on the podcast, they talk about, you know, how do they feel? Should you go 100% hardcore or should you just ease into paleo? So uh, I pretty much, you know, like I mentioned in previous episodes, I was pretty much paleo before. I just didn't know it had a title to it. I was just exercising and trying to build muscle. And so I was eating a ton of whole food. But uh, then I found the term paleo. So it wasn't as drastic for me. But uh, I mean, what's what's the hardest part you think of transitioning to it? Uh, like for me, um, like, like I said, it was, it was just the difference in coming from like an 80%, 80% of my diet was coming from carbohydrates to, um, like 80% of my diet coming from, coming from fat. And that's a big shift. And it, it takes your body, it takes your body a while to start developing, um, you know, to start, there's there's sort of like a genetic process that has to take place in order to handle this this different nutrition that you're getting. Um, there has to be enough of these. Uh, there has to be enough of these nutrients available in the blood and in the cell before certain genes are starting to be transcribed. Certain enzymes are being transcribed to be able to handle this nutrition, and it, and it takes a while before um, your genetics kind of catch up to your new diet. If I would have done it slower, my hypothesis is that. Uh, it would have been a more an easier conversion because you know my 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 genes would have been keeping up with my nutrition as as opposed to having that massive shock where just I didn't have enough raw resources to process this stuff and so it was basically uh, uh, just it, it, it wasn't being absorbed I had to go somewhere so you know not to be too graphic about it but you can guess where I went. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mean, how are you now? Is your do you still struggle with any? 
digestive issues or anything like that? I'm sure there's some common things that you know about that other people are experiencing. Um, as of right now, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Um, you know, after, after that transition period from, uh, from vegan to paleo, you know, it, it, like I said, it took a couple of weeks. And then after that, uh, I could pretty much eat a strict paleo diet or, um, or whatever, or whatever you want to call it. And, and I, I just don't have any issues. That's great. So yeah, uh, we wanted to talk about your profession as a teacher. We were talking before we got on the show about being a teacher, and we were curious about learning patterns and if you see any trends in learning patterns. Because you know, a lot of us are coming from the bulletproof forum, so we're going to be people who want to do you know we can call it biohacking or you know brain enhancement through supplements and nootropics, but. Before we get to that hardcore stuff, uh, do you see any just natural learning patterns for people? Yeah, I, I do see some trends, and uh, there's a lot of trends in education. Um, the way the education model looks at it, you know, the way the system uh, is addressing educational needs is mostly uh, socioeconomic, but that's not what I'm seeing uh, in the field. Like I'm seeing um, different trends that are that are being established and, and it actually ties into uh, this subject uh, fairly well because a lot of it's nutrition based. Uh, during my first year of teaching, I saw a student that, that uh, was having like some serious digestion problems and he, he eventually had to be hospitalized and had to have like a foot of his small intestine removed or something like that. I mean, it was, it was some serious stuff, but before it even got to that point, his academic performance was declining severely, and um, and so like I, it just stuck in my mind, you know, that like he was having such problems with his with his digestion, and it was affecting his learning ability. And later on, I had another student that had the same thing, big time academic slip, and was later diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so I, I think there's a very strong relationship between digestion and learning capacity. Uh, um, I, you know, I think that uh, you know, doing some research, there was a claim made that there are twice as many neurotransmitters in the gut as there is in the brain, and so there's got to be um, a brain-gut connection there. And when the gut's not functioning right, the brain's probably not going to be functioning right either. Um, where I currently, where I currently teach, you know, it's it's within a socioeconomic range where a, a lot of the school meals are subsidized. And uh, since there are enough students that are on free and reduced lunch, um, they decided, you know, when, when, when that hits a certain percentage, uh, like I think when it hits like 80 percent of the schools on free and reduced lunch, basically they say, OK, the whole school is on free and, re- you know, the whole school is, is on free lunch. And, and I see these things that they're getting um, for their, you know, for their morning breakfast and stuff. And it's basically like a hot pocket filled up with processed peanut butter and jelly and it's not good and and i just make observations of the students that come in in the morning and they start snacking on these like um you know these these terrible things and and i i see how they do throughout the day you know i see like well how do they do in their morning classes and it's usually not very good you know later on um one of you know michelle obama's projects was to sort of upgrade the 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 food uh in in schools and she brought in um you know some or not her personally but uh due to the policy that she recommended they have a lot more um fruits and vegetables in the school which i think is great but another thing that came along with that policy was also a bunch of uh quote-unquote whole grains and so they're 
you know, some of, some of the policy was really good and it benefited the students a lot. Some of it, you know, it, it just kind of, kind of wrecked it, you know, the, the, with the, uh, with all the, all the whole wheat saying that, okay, well that's, that's nutritious because that's going to help you. And then you just see like all the problems that it occurs later and, and, uh, and you're just like, wow, is this really the best stuff? I mean, this is an important time in a, in a child's life is, you know, getting their, getting their primary education, getting their secondary education. And, and we're just feeding them a bunch of garbage and, and hoping that they retain everything that they can. And so definitely nutrition. Um, I've, I've seen, I see it all the time, you know, students that they pack a lunch, their parents, you know, they, they give them stuff. You know, I, I've got a couple of students, they, their parents pack them some like lint chocolate in their lunch every day because they read that it helps performance and they're very academically astute. Their SAT scores are off the charts. Um, you know, also that support network that, that students can get that stress management, anything they can do to manage that stress. When an organism is stressed out, it doesn't grow. And that's true for us too. It's true for our brains. And so once, you know, if they've got a good support system, then, then they can learn. And that's, that's true for us too. There are some school districts out there, believe it or not, that are trying some of the even some of the avant-garde stuff that you see on the bulletproof forums. Um, there are school systems that have like class sets of M waves, and they um, and they just pass them out, and they have these students like use the M waves and, and try to get coherence. You know, they 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 use the heart math uh, stuff, and they. I, I think they even have like a heart math module for the for certain public school systems and this is this was really popular in florida where these students were um were using m waves to try to enhance academic performance and, and you better believe it did i've seen school systems that use dual nbac uh and i've, I've seen i've personally witnessed um like really young children um like probably seven or eight years old that can do 12 back which is really impressive what is that tell uh, us and, tell us what that is so dual NBAC is um, it's a spatial memory program designed to target both audio and visual learning. So okay. if you, you'll see like a tic-tac-toe grid on, on your computer screen, um, you know, it's three by three and you'll see a, a specific location that's lit up within the grid. And you will also be given a, a letter um, uh, through the computer speaker. So it's an, you get an audio cue and a visual cue. And you start off with one back. So one back, when, when you see, you basically see a block light up, and then they give you a letter. So on level one back, you just have to pay attention to the last thing that you just saw. So if it's if the block lights up on the same location, you'll type L on your keyboard for location. And if the same letter is used, you'll type A for audio. And if both are used, you'll type A and L to get the same signal. So on two back, you skip... Um, you skip a level. So you'll see something and hear something. You'll see something and hear something again. And then on the next round, you have to compare it to the first thing that you saw. So that's two back. And then three back, you know, it just keeps going from there and it gets exponentially harder. On 12 back, you've got a seven-year-old sitting in a chair that can remember things that they heard from, uh, heard and saw um, 12 uh, 12 presentations ago and they can remember it in succession and continue to go over and over again and get like scores in the 50 to 60 percentile range of, of completion, which is, which is really, really impressive. And uh, a lot of school districts are starting to go to these, um, to these brain games to, you know, some, some school districts are using Lumosity and some of the other popular ones you're seeing and they're getting results with them. I've seen school districts that uh, have really good chess clubs and uh, and that that seems to that seems to work. 
And of course, I have to mention um, that probably the greatest, uh, probably the, the most effective thing that the public schools are doing, um, at least in this country, are music education programs. Um, it looks like music is probably the most effective way to upgrade a kid's brain in the public schools. I started reading um, this book called The Talent Code by uh, Daniel Coyle, and he sort of went on this journey um, where he saw these talent hotbeds, and he was looking at uh, places like, well, why does Brazil have all these really good soccer players? And, you know, why is this recording studio in Dallas, Texas, putting out, you know, so many um, superstars on the radio? And, you know, how come, you know, how come that this little dilapidated tennis court in Russia is producing more tennis champions than any place else. And he started looking at the biochemical processes and, and everything involved. And, you know, he said, well, maybe it's not just about 10,000 repetitions to, to myelinate the nerves. Maybe there's other factors involved as well. And he started looking at all of these different, uh, these different areas that can really, uh, that, that can reduce those numbers of repetitions, uh, to get the same result, to really master a skill. Um, sort of like what was done under the Bill Clinton administration when they were doing the uh, Human Genome Project, uh, the, the, the new administration is sort of doing a brain mapping project, which I think is really interesting. And there's a, there's a wing in one of the Harvard uh, medical institutions that's looking just at neuroplasty right now. And they found four, they found four things that, will incre- that have been proven to um, increase neuroplasty. And the first one they found was music. Music seems to highlight the entire brain and make it more experiential. If you have a stroke victim where part of their brain dies, um, you know you can switch on some music. You can t- you can turn on. You know they might not remember their wife, uh, but if you flip on the song they danced to when they got uh, their first wedding uh, dance, you, f- you turn on that song and all of a sudden like everything starts coming back to them because music affects the whole brain. Also, they, they've they figured out that physical movement. Um, plays in uh, into it also, like not just you know exercise. Exercise counts, but like some other things might count too, like you know dance or tai chi or whatever. Just getting up and moving around seems to really be effective. Um, another another thing that you can do is set up like creative time, like play time, sort of like a sandbox environment where um, the students can use uh, bits and pieces of knowledge you gave them and, and be creative with it and really come up with new. Things and the last one is um, is sort of this experiential state of mind where you feel like you're a part of something greater than yourself. You know, you feel like you're you're a part of a team, and um, it's it's sort of almost like a pneumonis type experience. And, and people can find that in, in many different ways. Some people find it in religion. Some people find it in team sports. Some people uh, can find it in, in other different aspects of culture. But that seems to be really crucial too um, to develop. Uh, to develop neuroplasty. Okay, yeah, I mean, the brain is, you know, all it is is made up of neural pathways, so, I mean, it is possible for people to transform the life of your kid with some really, you know, common sense stuff. So, you know, I, I don't want people to get discouraged out. Me and Titus here, we're actually, we were looking at the website for the dual and back uh, website. That's dual in dash back. If somebody wants to look it up, you can find it. And they're talking about using it for not only focus and attention, but it actually may improve the symptoms of ADD and ADHD. So that's incredible. But yeah, the, the next thing that we should talk about is uh, where we can find information and research. I mean, we are in the research age now. 
And I want to know, uh, John and Jason, where you guys have found the most influential and, you know, best advice, I guess, to take from the Internet. Um, well, I guess for me specifically, which I know a lot of people do out there, is most of us do use PubMed to find a lot of uh, articles and researches and studies and stuff like that that's been done. I mean, most doctors use that as a source, and most people who research everything, they use it for a source too. But one of the most important things you can do as well is you can listen to different podcasts, you know, put out by different people. It's always good to hear, you know, different, you know, forms of opinion and stuff like that. Like the people you've had on your podcast, Evan, it's always good to hear from different sources. You just don't want to be stuck on one thing when it comes to health. Um, is very important. And also, too, I guess, would be to good thing you should do is also research, you know, different people of whatever you're passionate about. Like one of my biggest threads on the board is about magnesium. And it started with me because I was working at the vitamin shop and they used to give us free books that we were able to take home to research and stuff like that. And uh, Dr. Uh, Caroline Dean had a book called The Magnesium Miracle. And I took it home and I read it and I was shocked for all the information that she was giving that every time I went to a doctor, they never even mentioned it. Um, you know, they would always, you know, draw the serum magnesium levels, which for most people would appear to be normal, but serum magnesium only represents one or 2% of your body's total magnesium. So it could still come up normal on a test, but you could still be deficient in your muscles and your nerves and, um, everything, you know, on a cellular level too. And, she was talking about how 80% of Americans are deficient in it. And that just struck me back. I was like, wow, you know, I mean, I, I eat a lot of, you know, wide variety of foods. You know, I was wondering myself if I was. So I went and took a magnesium EXA test and I found out that I was severely deficient in magnesium, even though I was eating plenty of nuts, you know, I was eating rice. I just wasn't getting hardly any of it. So I started supplementing and I saw a huge difference. So one of the best things that people can do as far as they want to learn more about supplements is to make sure that they read books up on it. Um, there are a lot of different authors out there that give a lot of good information. Uh, Dr. David Brownstein would be another. talks about iodine a lot and biodemical hormones, but he also covers you know, drugs and natural remedies to certain diseases and stuff like that. And that's probably one of the best ways people can get information um, is either to read books or to listen to podcasts for most people, or even on the forums, you know, there's people who give good information out there, like, you know, Jason and myself. But what I tell everybody is, is just because I tell you something does not mean it's always true. It is your job to make sure that you research it on your own and come to your own conclusion on it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something important to remember that, you know, all this stuff that us are educating each other about and experimenting on ourselves, it's not static. I mean, just as science is not static, we may try to act like facts are facts, but I mean, we learn new stuff every single day, and I'm sure you guys can agree that a lot's changed just over the past few years about what we may have thought the best supplement for XYZ was and best dosages and stuff like that. So I think it's just important to remember that everything does change, and there are flows that do happen with this stuff because... uh, you know, you could tend to, like you said, if you stick to one person, you could start to get a kind of like a horse with blinders on, and that's the only viewpoint that you have on human health. So that's, I do definitely think that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, um, Jason, if you wanted to add anything about that, man, just as far as research uh, or what you've done, where all your research happens, I mean, that'd be uh, that'd be cool to hear about that too. 
Yeah, awesome. Um, I think that it's good to have a strong uh, fundamental base of education, and you know, education is changing. You know, with the internet, and you can either change with it or get left behind. There are so many uh, free online courses that you can take either through edx.orgs. Uh, let's see, MIT's got open courseware, Harvard, UT Berkeley. You can take the same classes that pre-med students are taking that, you know, that, uh, med students are taking, you know, you can, even if you, even if you're not even interested in health at all and you want to study something else, it's out there for free and why not take advantage of this stuff? It, yes. I mean, it's, it's like the best, the best professors out there, you know, like, uh, I just took a class from, uh, MIT that, that was taught by professor Lander. I mean, he is the founder of the human genome project. I mean, come on, it was free. It cost me nothing. And I learned so much. So just having that that framework for understanding will allow you to go back and critically review some of these other things that you're seeing. I remember when I was a, a graduate student um, at the University of Iowa, and I had to do like it was like one of my first um, research presentations that I had to do, and I, I didn't know you know very much about research at all. I just thought you know you go out and get some sources and report back. And that's what I did, and, and I chose some sources that probably weren't very academic and were sort of like sensational. And we see a lot of that in nutrition too. And I did, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I got blasted by my major professor, but he definitely let me know what is a good source and how to evaluate a source. And and, um, and I learned a lot from that. And now when I'm researching um, nutrition and, and health related stuff, like I know what to look for. I, I know that if it's on a, uh, you know, that if there's no references cited, that it's probably not as valid as if there are. If it seems to be emotionally charged, it may not be the best, it may not be the best source. Um, I also learned how to just logically evaluate different sources. Even some of the ones that are on PubMed, um, they, they seem to reach conclusions that aren't logically drawn up from the experiment that they put into place. I just saw a PubMed article written a little while ago about why you shouldn't consume large quantities of um, saturated fat all at once. And it, and it turned out that they were just looking at the immune response. And um, I guess the conclusion that they came to was that it like draws out all these toxins from the gut or whatever. But they just looked at the immune response proteins. They didn't actually look at um, the gut. And so what that study tells me is that definitely there's something going on. Now let's look into the gut itself and see if we can find any toxins. And they never did that. They never went that far. They just said, okay, this is good enough. Um, and so like it, it definitely, you know, having a good uh, fundamental basis for your research definitely helps. Um, being able to critically evaluate a source definitely helps too. And also figure out who's funding some of this research. I mean, if it's funding by, if it's funded by Monsanto, are you really going to trust it? I mean, if it's backed by a company that that doesn't seem to be operating ethically, um, is is that something you're gonna is that something you're gonna support and stand behind too? I mean, you got to look where the where the money's coming from. Yeah, I mean, is there any way that you can actually track and figure out who is funding the studies when you're doing research like that? You can. Most of the time, the source is listed for it. Um, usually, there's it's very easy to reverse engineer most studies right. for the most part, and that's very very important. Jason hit it right on the nail there. You need to find out who's funding those studies. Or because then if you don't know, you're going to run into problems of like, you know, Jason said, you're going to run into bias problems. And that's very bad when it comes to research. And a lot of it is really out there. OK, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, always if, if you look that. at the bottom, 
Sorry, Evan. No, if go you, ahead. If, if, you, if, you, if you look at a PubMed, you know, somebody links a PubMed article, it's very common. You click on it and check it out. You get the abstract at the top. Go ahead and see if there's a free full text edition so you can see what really went on. That's important. Also, you keep scrolling down and it shows you what funded um, – it usually shows you which organizations provided funding for – the project now. If it was a university, okay, is the university going to be biased? Well, probably not as biased as say like a pharmaceutical company, um, you know, or, or something like that. So, um, a lot of it's just right on the article. You just got to scroll down to the bottom and click on those and click on those links or click on the. I'm not sure what really what you would call that, but you just click on the bar and it expands out and and you can see you can see who funded it and that, and that's important. Okay. Well, Jason, you mentioned the study talking about a lot of saturated fat not being good at one time. So can we talk about why saturated fat uh, A is – you know, why is why is saturated fat so good for us? And is there a certain level to the amount of saturated fat you think we should be taking at a time? Um, I'm not really sure if there's like an upper limit of – saturated fat that we should be consuming all at once. Um, I haven't come across any research that would definitively show that, uh, well, other than the one that I just mentioned, which is, um, you know, it's debatable whether there is an upper limit to that. Um, Like I I choose to eat, you know, if you go on my fitness pal profile, like you'll see that I do consume a lot of saturated fat. And I have, you know, since going raw vegan, which I pretty much had no saturated fat in, I have significantly improved the way, you know, the way I perform, you know, I have a lot more energy. Um, my brain thinks better. I mean, before, before I I switched to the paleo diet, like I, I couldn't do any of this stuff. I didn't know anything about nutrition. I mean, why do you think I was vegan in the first place? Um, not cause I did a bunch of PubMed research, that's for sure. Um, and, and so, you know, it, 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 it affects you on all sorts of different levels. You know, the metabolization of fat and releasing ketone bodies, that's really good for your nervous system. And not just for your critical thinking or stuff. It's good for your whole nervous system, you know. And and so – and also, like, you look at, at, uh, at lipolysis, you know, how fat is, is broken down and metabolized. It really is good for your mitochondria. You're, you're talking about – you're talking about a bigger, a much greater um, net gain increase than your other standard – macronutrient values i mean it's just blasting out atp and tons of energy as conversion has taken place so i mean all the research that i've come to all the biochemistry that's involved you know it, it shows that uh saturated fat is is like if you're looking to optimize your performance that's you need to be you need to be eating some yeah absolutely what's your biggest source of saturated fat uh you know i and i'm not and they don't sponsor me or anything but it's probably Kerrygold. Yep. <laughs> Kerrygold butter Futuric acid. <laughs> Yeah, it's good stuff. It is. Yeah, Titus Freezer, I went over to his house and his freezer was stuffed. We'll have to post a picture. I mean, he had like, I think he bought Whole Foods' entire stock of Kerrygold. (laughs) (laughs) I I saw a picture of that on the forums. You said you got a discount for that uh, bulk purchase, is that right? Yeah, if you buy a case at once, they'll give you 10% off. And then here in Louisville, um, I hope nobody listening takes my advice here, but... uh, about once every quarter, they actually sell it for one ninety nine a stick. So I buy a okay. case and then get at one ninety nine with ten percent off. So it ends up being pretty cheap actually for the butter. No more expensive than going to Walmart and getting it. So works pretty well. Wow. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll have to 
post a picture of that on the show notes because that's actually pretty funny. And then the rest of it, the rest of his freezer was filled with bulletproof coffee. So go figure. I agree with Jason on that too. Is about saturated fat. It's one of the most important. I remember for years it was demonized when um, they claimed that uh, coconut oil was was high source of bad saturated fat and they moved over to more canola and soy based oils saying it was more heart healthy and everything like that but saturated fat definitely definitely is something that most people should consume in a, in a regular basis and i really honestly don't think there's really much i know coconut oil is a very good source and butter is a good source and palm oil is a good source and i know cottonseed oil is high in it and people should definitely stay away from cottonseed oil but um, Jason, one question I guess I guess would have is is most saturated fat pretty much all of it is pretty much good. Would you say correct as far as the different acids themselves? Um, like in their raw chemical forms, I would say yeah, that's right. Um, but there can be certain metabolites that break down that will make them somewhat carcinogenic. It, you know, we talk about oxidation a lot and. Um, sort of, you know, one thing that that I was struggling to come to terms with when I was just trying to study nutrition was like, well, there's no oxygen involved in this reaction. What's going on? But oxidation is, is just talking about change in charge and, you know, sort of like proton electron chance transfers and stuff. And like if you take a saturated fat or a fatty acid in particular, uh, which is one of the, you know, it's if you take a long fatty acid, as a chain, you break it down into the fatty acids. Fatty acids when they when they oxidize, um, it's it's no they're no longer as beneficial. In fact, sometimes they can cause inflammation and other problems. They can stimulate certain hormones to malfunction, and you know they, it, it really changes the properties of it just by changing its charge. Um, when usually when enzymes attract a particular molecule, they Usually they don't always look at the whole thing, you know, and, and I'm using an anthropomorphic thing. It's they're not really looking. They don't have eyes, but they only interact with like the head of the molecule and everything beyond it doesn't really doesn't really um, interact. And especially with the transferases, if you get something that appears to fit, you know, up front, you know, the little molecules are like keys. And if they fit in the key in the keyhole. Well, that's great, but then what happens to the rest of it? What if the rest of it's oxidized? And then so then you run into problems. You jam that whole that thing up and it gets stuck in there and um, you try to use it, you know, you try to use it, uh, you, you try to use it structurally and it suddenly it doesn't work. You know, it's like, well, I want to build a, a bilayer sheath with this thing. I want to build some cell walls and all of a sudden it doesn't fit right because mm-hmm. it's charged wrong. So it's pushing other things away. Maybe yeah. it's supposed to be hydrophilic and now it's hydrophobic. And, and so, you know, and, and it, it becomes a mess. Well, in the case of fats, it would probably be hydrophobic and then become hydrophilic, but you know what I mean? Um, and, and all of a sudden you, you end up into you misshapen uh, cell walls. And, you know, and so, it, it, you know, it, I wouldn't say that you just eat saturated fat without any sort of care. Make sure they're sourced correctly. Yes. You can have you can have them oxidized through not just, you know, of course, cooking, um, you know, that can affect it. Uh, if you if you heat something up for long enough, it will start to oxidize. You know, the it, as you heat up matter, you know, the everything starts to get faster and moves around quickly and all of a sudden the, the chance of oxidation comes up. But, you know, look at, uh, look at uh, microorganism interactions too. You know I mean? Is this stuff rancid? That's going to cause oxidation. That's going to introduce toxins and, and that's not good. So, I mean, obviously with a lot of saturated fats, it's hard to do that, but it's not impossible to yeah. have your butter go rancid. I mean, it, it, it can occur. I mean, away, just stay, like, away, stay away from hydrogenated oils too. I mean, that's, oh yeah, yeah it's bad, nasty stuff. And also, far as butric acid being in butter uh, most people know that helps feed the bacteria in the gut but for people with SIBO it can be a bad thing as well because that butric acid feeds the opportunistic bacteria along with the uh, probiotic bacteria too 
So yep, it, yep. It, it is difference in the acid. You are right. Yeah, so you're saying you actually throw off and further reduce the health of your gut by using butter if you are somebody who has the small – what is it, small intestine bacterial overgrowth? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, butter itself, the beetric acid um, – usually causes problems. I know butter is very, extremely low in lactose, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. I've known people with digestive disorders who can't even tolerate butter. Right. And a lot of it has to do with the butric acid contact feeding both the probiotic and the opportunistic bacteria as well. So that would, so basically what you would want to do in that case then is just test butter on yourself. And I mean, would you know, would you know if you're feeling horrible from it? What would you be experiencing? Uh, bloating. Bloating would probably be the number one, the number one feeling that most people would get. Um, as far as SIBO is concerned, it would be the gas, extra gas from the, um, bacteria feeding off of it. Okay. So then at that point, you just want to eliminate butter. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's some other thing. I mean, it depends about what, what it is about the butter that's, that's throwing you off. I mean, if, if it's, you know, if it's the, uh, Butric acid, um, like John suggested, then then yeah, you're kind of in a tough spot. You need to handle those bacteria. But if it is the lactose, there are things that you can do. I mean, yes. if you have a defective beta galactase gene um, and it's not, you know, you don't have the enzyme to treat that, well, then just supplement with the enzyme. I mean, there's what is that stuff, lactate or whatever? Yes, yes. Um, and and like maybe it's there. There are some other protein bodies in the butter too. So here's here's what I you know here's here's what I did one time, just you know because I ran into the same problem. Um, that John was talking about. And so what I did was I took some butter and I, you know, I just put a bunch of butter in, in a saucepan and I heated it up uh, on low temperature. And I just let the solids um, sift down to the bottom and the fats float up. And I took a bit of cheesecloth and I just poured it through um, the cheesecloth and I just, I took out all the, all the solids. So they were gone and I just left the fats. And then I still, you know, I, and it turned out I wasn't sensitive to that stuff. It was something else that, that, and it turned out that, you know, I was having a SIBO like uh, response. And so I hit up my buddy on the forums, Ron Swanson, and uh, gave me some great tips for, for how to handle that. And it worked and I've never had a problem since. So, I mean, if, if you're chugging your bulletproof coffee and, um, and you know, you're, you're burping up all sorts of stuff afterwards, it, you could, probably have SIBO um, and, and you need to get that addressed or, or else it's going to, it's going to give you problems. It's going to ruin your day every day. Yeah, John, go ahead. Tell, tell us what's uh, a little bit more about the SIBO. Um, SIBO stands for, like you said earlier, Evan, uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth syndrome. And um, usually it's caused in most people, um, believe it or not, when they're taking probiotics, they may or may not have this condition beforehand. And a lot of people will take probiotics thinking that it's great for their health. And they might have a pre-existing gut issue that they're not aware of, mm-hmm. and the probiotics start to become opportunistic and start to multiply in great deals in the large intestine and then start spilling over into the small intestine. Because small intestine itself has very little uh, amount of microorganisms in it. It's the way it was designed. So when all the bacteria spill over from the large intestine to the small intestine, they start producing large amounts of gas. And that's why most people will say, well, I take a probiotic, but I still feel horrible. The reason being is because you're just keep constantly feeding that opportunistic bacteria and the small intestine keeps getting larger and larger and larger. I mean, probiotics are a great thing, don't get me wrong, and they should be used you know, under supervision. It shouldn't be a supplement that everybody should be taking um, because it can easily cause SIBO for a lot of people. And especially there's different types of probiotics and you know, you have to go into which ones are better for certain types of situations. 
But um, also another thing SIBO can be caused is just by taking antibiotics for a long period of time. Um, you take antibiotics for a while, it upsets the gut relationship as far as bacteria right. in your gut. And then all of a sudden you have more opportunistic bacteria start moving in and then you have SIBO from that. And finally, most of the time, the only other reason it most times caused by most people are people who are on PPIs for a long period of time. Um, acid blocks a lot of bacteria from being digested. What is a um, PPI? A proton pump inhibitor. Uh, Prilosect, Nexium are some of the most common examples of it. Okay. Um, when they're on it for a long period of time, the stomach doesn't make enough acid. Therefore, a lot of the bacteria that you digest don't die off. So they get deposited in the small intestine, and since there's no competition there, they flourish. Wow. So actually, uh, I mean, would you be experiencing diarrhea or any type of like bowel problems too if you are someone who's suffering for this or you may be trying to figure out why taking a probiotic isn't working for you? Um, yes, that would cause actually a lot of people will actually get a di- diarrhea from a probiotic and they could have SIBO. That's one of the most common symptoms of it. Um, most common symptoms of SIBO are gla- gas, bloating, um, IBS. Pretty, most IBS is pretty much caused by SIBO type reactions. Um, also, if someone has rosacea, rosacea and SIBO have been greatly linked with one another because there was a trial, actually there's been quite a few studies, but there was a trial where they treated rosacea with antibiotics and, and it went away. Yeah, so um, tell us about the the whole thing about uh, probiotics and, and diarrhea. Why why is that happening? And I mean, what do we do? What's the next step? I mean, now that this overgrowth has happened, how do we start fixing it? Is it just is would you say oil is the biggest uh, cause for this, or, or what? Or can you narrow it down? Um, I would say once someone gets sib- SIBO, one of the two things that they can do is is one. They have to stop the fermentable foods um, in their gut that are feeding the bacteria. One of the best ways you can get rid of them is by starving them. Um, One of the best ways of doing that is going on a FODMAP. You broke up there, John. Uh, Evan, you there? Yeah, you said uh, you were starting to talk about FODMAPs. Uh, yeah, limiting FODMAPs and resistant starches. um, can, Can you tell us quickly what the FODMAPs are? Yes, um, FODMAPs are anything that feeds the bacteria in the gut. Um, fructose, lactose, oleosaccharides, um, polyols, which are sugar, alcohols, um, foods that, are, that the bacteria just love to eat on. Um, some of the most high examples of FODMAPs, which give a lot of people um, heartburn, would be garlic and onion would be a huge example. They're very high in polyols, which are sugar alcohols. And uh, most people, when they have reactions to both of those it's really an underlying SIBO problem which is causing their digestive problems because onions and garlic are so high in FODMAPs Um, there are other foods that are a little bit less like some people can get away with eating a fourth of an avocado a day and stuff like that and the resistant starches are new to the FODMAP diet because before they were everybody was taught that potatoes were fine and rice were fine but now we're taught that bacteria also eat resistant starches. Um, one of the easiest ways you can figure out resistant starches is if you cook a potato and you leave it out for 30 minutes, the potato won't be very soft anymore. It'll get kind of hard when you try to put a fork through it. And that's because the potato, the starches start to bind back together and they start to go back to their natural form. So when someone has SIBO, it's best to limit their potato intake and their rice intake that's high and um, the, the starch. A low starch rice would be like your jasmine rice, which has more pectin over starch. Um, that's one thing most people can do is just limit FODMAPs. 
Um, a a two-prong approach would be best. A second would be if someone has SIBO, they need to take an antibacterial agent like um, enteric-coated peppermint oil or colloidal silver. And they also need to take a biofilm uh, blocker or chelator like Interface Plus or N-acetylcysteine or lactoferrin because biofilm bacteria, they clump together for protection. It's like if you haven't brushed your teeth in a couple of days and you have that film on your teeth, that's biofilm. It's one of those common, you know sources of it would be on your teeth but your gut can have that too with all the bacteria congregating together so you can take an antibiotic and it does nothing because the biofilm is protecting the bacteria Mm. so that's why you have to use a biofilm chelator like interface plus which all it is is enzymes and uh a supplement called um calcium disodium edta which is a chelator and what it does is it takes the iron out of the biofilm because bacteria need iron to live just like you and when it takes it out of the biofilm, the bacteria are unprotected, so an antimicrobial agent like peppermint oil can come in and eliminate them. Okay, now the peppermint oil, is that, I mean, would that be the same thing as an essential peppermint oil? Uh, I mean, are those the therapeutic essential oils, are those high enough quality to use, and would you just uh, drop those on your tongue, or how would that work? No, you um, may, essential oils are fine for some people, but for most people who have digestive issues, it causes... Um, Heartburn because the LES, uh, lower esophageal sphincter, relaxes up. The LES is the, the valve that keeps your stomach acid from going up into your esophagus. It opens and closes when food goes through it. Um, peppermint oil tends to relax it because it's a muscle relaxant as well. So that's why you take the enteric coated peppermint oil. So the enteric coated in it protects the stomach from breaking it down. So it gets broken down in the alkaline state of the small intestine. And that's where it's most beneficial. You would not want to take essential oil, get a bad dose of heartburn if that happens. Okay, so it would be a capsule. Is that what the the thing you're describing is? Yes, Nature's Way sells a very good one. It's called Pepogest. It's also the one that's been studied the most. Okay. Um, But just make sure it's enteric-coated. That's what matters. Okay, great. And so that would be some of the first steps to reducing this amount of bacteria. I'm actually fascinated by this, so that's why I'm spending so much time on this. Uh, just the way that the health of your gut, it, it affects everything. I'd say it's almost the starting point of overall health because if you have gut problems or you're experiencing any type of digestion and stuff, I mean, it is so distracting from your everyday life that it's all you can think about. So that's why I want to keep talking about ways that we can fix this. So you, you mentioned fructose too. So I guess FODMAP, would, are you eliminating all fruit? Um. For the first week or two, it's always the best thing to eliminate all fruit just because fructose malabsorption is usually so bad in people who um, have have uh, stomach issues. Usually, actually, fructose malabsorption is usually actually a greater problem than lactose malabsorption is for most people. Um, really? Fructose just – it's not – the human body wasn't really designed to eat large amounts of fructose. I mean I know for years I guzzled down tons of amount through high fructose corn syrup before I became healthier and stuff like that. And the body, there, there's, I think the body should get some fructose. I'm not, there are some people out there to say the body shouldn't get any at all. Um, I don't know how Jason feels about it, but I think maybe limiting to about 30 grams a day, between 30 and 50 grams a day would probably be a good idea for most people. Um, but yeah, if you were going to ingest fructose on a FODMAP diet, you want to go for your low fructose fruits like your berries, um, I know stone fruits are usually okay for most people because they're low in, in, in fructose, but 
on a FODMAP diet, stone fruits are considered bad because they're high in polyols, which are sugar alcohols. Like Zorbitol is a prime example. If you have IBS and you take anything with Zorbitol in it, nine times out of ten, you're going to have severe stomach cramps from the bacteria making all that gas because bacteria love Zorbitol so very much. Yeah, Jason, did you want to jump in and talk about the uh, the consumption of fruit and stuff for a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, if you're going to eat fruit, you know, it depends on yeah, – th- this kind of goes into sort of like where – um, where you want to get your calories from and stuff like that. I try to limit my total sugars um, to under 20 grams a day. Um, what does that, what does that yeah. convert to in fruit? I mean, is that like a couple pieces of an apple or how do you rate that? Well, it depends on what kind of fruit that you have. And I think it also depends on like what what value you set for yourself. Has It, it depends on a bunch of other factors too. Like what else are you eating along with that? And it's not so simple it, like it's to make a recommendation like you should take less than 20 grams. Like that's good for me and my present condition and my present diet and location and uh, biological requirement and all that stuff. But like if I'm going to eat fruit – um, you know, I mean, and, and, and I hate it right now because like watermelon is, is in season and, yes. uh, you know, I'm from Southern Louisiana and so it's great and it tastes so good, but like maybe don't eat the whole watermelon, you know, maybe just, you know, kind of, but it's so good right now, you know, <laughs> even the seedless, the seedless. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, ber- berries, like John said, are, are, um, are usually pretty well tolerated and, you know, with, the with the berries, you get a bunch of other micronutrients with that too. Um, but you know, if you're, it, it just, it's, you have to ask yourself why you're eating fruit. Are you eating it for the micronutrient content? Can you get that in a pill, um, and not have to deal with all the other byproducts from it? Um, there are other types of sugars out there. Um, I've been experimenting with, uh, trailose, uh, which is actually, um, it's found in like, okay. So in a, in, in a human cell, we use glucose to perform, you know, glycolysis and cellular respiration, fermentation to generate ATP to, you know, get work done in, in, in the cell. But insects use trailose and it's like two hydrogen bonded glucose molecules. And I've been, I've been experimenting with that before bed as opposed to, um, to honey. And I've been getting great results. I, I have one of the last, uh, Zio sleep monitors. If you're fortunate enough to get one of those and there, that's a cool sleep hacking tool, but I've been, I've been testing that with my Zio and and it's really been working out as opposed to some of the other um, supplements out there that can be a little bit more dangerous um, that sort of mess around with your neurotransmitters. So, um, you know, I think that there's a bunch of different sugars out there and just do your research and figure out what they all do, you know, the biochemistry behind them and figure out which ones, which ones are going to be the best for you and your biological needs. I'll just say, uh, you know, me and Nora Gagatis, we talked about it a little bit and she said the same thing. Berries, are your go-to fruit. I mean, the low glycemic index, I mean, there's so many benefits to them. So uh, that's a safe way to go. And I agree with Evan on that. And one last thing to add to that. Um, Watermelon is great for most people. It is high in fructose. So much water. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. His son came in, but yeah. uh... (laughs) Sorry about that, Evan. (laughs) Oh, you're, you're fine. You're fine. All right, but yeah, as far as watermelon is concerned, it's high in fructose, and it is. And for a lot of people, some of the stuff in watermelon outweighs the fructose. Like citrulline is very high as an amino acid is very good for blood for um, blood vessel dilation and increasing nitric oxide and everything in the blood. But um, also watermelon, even though it's high in sugar, it has a low glycemic load, which means 
over a period of time of consuming watermelon, it really doesn't affect your blood sugar. Um, it might have a high glycemic index, but a low glycemic load. And people should understand the difference between the two. I'm fine with most people eating fruit. Fruit's great for you. I just, like with everything, I guess, Jason, would you guys would, and Evan, you would agree with me too, it's best for moderation. Mm-hmm. Moderation is the most important thing when it comes to consuming things. You don't want to consume fruit as 100% of your diet. Well, yeah. Let's yeah. get into uh, let's get into biohacking a little bit. We hear that word a lot, and uh, I'm sure maybe in a few years or so, it might be kind of like a joke word that people make fun of. But uh, Jason, tell us about. I mean, just give an introduction to somebody who's never even heard the term biohacking before, and just tell us what some of the most common things that people do are when they do this. Okay, so. With uh, with biohacking, basically, you're changing your environment or you're adding or removing certain stimuli that um, that should produce a certain result. Uh, and, and everybody, whether you think of it or not, everybody out there is biohacking because everybody is making decisions that affect their surroundings and affect their environment. Like if you're you know, if you decide to sit down and, and, and watch a television show, well, that's biohacking and it's going to have an effect on your hormones, uh, depending upon which show you watch. If you're going to watch, um, kind of like a more, um, thriller type, you know, uh, amped up show, or if you're going to watch like a boxing match or UFC or whatever, that's going to raise your cortisone levels. And if you do that before bed, you know, that's going to be, um, a biohack that's going to lead into probably loss of sleep. Um, you know, the type of music that you listen to probably has an effect on that. So, you know, or if, if you choose to, you know, the, the type of entertainment that, that you, that you go with, like everything we're doing is sort of a biohack. We just don't really notice it or call it that, you know, so we're, 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 always doing these things but um you know like if if you're wanting to uh and and you know the whole quantified self movement's really popular right now and you can you can quantify just about anything that you're doing and and if you want to have a specific outcome and you want to perform a certain experiment or as we call them on the on the on the forums uh like a protocol you know then you need to you need to make sure that you do it in a safe way um I would definitely recommend that uh, you set up some kind of a baseline first and say, okay, this is where I am, and get it measured. Now, if you're using your own biology for biohacking, um, then you know you probably want to work with somebody that can um, that can measure, you know, either your your blood work or something like that, so you can establish a baseline value because you don't want it to get out of control, and you want to make sure that what you're doing is um, actually having an effect on your biology. I've heard the argument a bunch of times that like no one should ever take supplements because all you're doing when you take supplements is you're creating expensive urine. Well, is that true? If you're not, if you haven't established a baseline and you're not really getting yourself uh, tested before and after, you have no idea whether this stuff's helping you or not. You have you have no clue. So um, that would be a good standpoint. You know, you, you probably want to do some research, maybe run it across. Some people, you know, like in the Bulletproof forums, there's a lot of sharp people out there. Maybe run it by some people before you try to do something, especially if it's, uh, you know, if, if it could be dangerous or whatever. Then, um, yeah, I mean, you don't know how many times I get on and I see people pop up and they're, they're so interested in, in, trans, in transcranial stimulation. And they're like, yeah, I'm just going to pass current through my brain. And, uh, but I don't have the money to buy like a medical grade one. So I'm going to make one out of like an acupuncture machine. And I'm like, please, please do not do that. And I like beg people not to do it. And I hope they don't. 
um, ever do that because like they don't have the same resistance uh, in the circuitry. Like they have, they have a greater chance for a voltage spike, and and that could do damage to your brain. And is is doing damage to your brain really worth saving a couple hundred bucks um, from buying a solid unit? So I mean, yeah, there there's a bunch of different. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of. I mean, some people do, and a lot of people do. Uh, you know, trans. Uh, transcranial stimulation on a, on a regular basis, but they do it in a controlled way and they use, you know, um, they use some biomedical equipment set up by engineers that understand skin resistance and all this other stuff. And, and they do it in a safe way and, and they don't have any problems, but even those people are still taking a certain degree of risk too. Um, if a sudden, like if you're using a battery operated one, which is the one that's normally recommended because if you use one from the wall, then there's more voltage fluctuation. But like if you're using a battery operating one, what happens if the battery goes dead or what if the battery gets disconnected? I mean, you could just really get a huge surge of electricity going through your brain. So anybody doing that is taking a risk. Um, and, and so you kind of have to, you kind of have to try to mitigate your risk and you kind of try to have to um, do some things to try to get the effects you want by lowering the risk as much as possible. But definitely, like biohacking can be dangerous. If you read any biohacker's blog, um, they will probably show, they will probably share stuff with you about how they tried something and it didn't work out the way they thought they would, or they didn't follow the protocol exactly the way it was designed and, you know, and uh, it didn't work out so well. So just, if, if you're doing if you're doing something simple like well I'm going to try ramping up my B vitamins and see if they show up in my blood that probably won't be as dangerous as you know if if you try to pass current through your brain but you know you just kind of have to pick and choose what what you want to try to experiment with on yourself and and what you want to try to accomplish. Yeah, John, you wanted to mention uh, sunflower lecithin, and I guess that could be considered. Uh, a biohack talking about helping the myelination of nerves. Uh, first, tell us what is the myelination of nerves? What does that actually mean? Okay, the the myelination of uh, nerves, I guess, your, your nerves have a myelin sheath on them. And the myelin sheath is used by, I guess, your body to both protect the nerve itself but also to improve conduction or nerve transference so that the signals from the nerve, you know, work more smoothly between one another and from the brain. And the, how lecithin works in that is lecithin is used by your body to make the myelin sheaths. And a lot of people nowadays, because our diets are so deficient, mm-hmm. um, we don't take in the right amount of fats and the right forms of lecithin, whether it be from eggs or, you know, sunflower lecithin, like you said. And some people, you know, take soy lecithin. Um, we we can't make adequate amounts of choline either, and this is a huge problem for a lot of people. And it, I guess Jason would also agree with me. It can lead to be one of the reasons why a lot of people suffer from mental fog nowadays. And that's a, and that's a deficiency of choline. I would assume. Yeah. So. Would you say the same thing, it Jason? Could, yeah, I mean, it could be a bunch. Of, it could be inflammation. Also, I mean, there's a lot of things that can cause brain fog. Uh, but yeah, I mean, not having enough choline. That's like not having enough gas in your car. I mean, you're probably not going to win the Indy 500 if you have an empty gas tank, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I guess the safest step there is to make sure you're eating organic pasture-raised eggs. I mean, is that the first thing that you'd say? Yes, I would say that would be a good idea. And also would say to cook it on the lowest heat you possibly can. I would assume Jason would agree with me on that one. Yeah, well, especially, um, yeah, I, I would uh, I would take great care, especially with the yolks, because you want to preserve 
the choline and the yolk and it's very temperature sensitive and it oxidizes really quickly. And, you know, there's also the argument of the oxidized cholesterol on the eggs and all that stuff that makes it, you know, the heat makes it more susceptible to that. So like, you know, if you can uh, cook your whites on fairly low temperature and take your eggs raw, your egg yolks raw, you know, that's what, that's what a lot of people do. Okay. Now, on the I forms mean, anyway. So, I mean, does actually altering the physical form of the yolk, I mean, having scrambled eggs, is, does that affect anything when you're cooking it? Does it allow it to cook off more or oxidize more choline, or do you have anything on that? I mean, if you, I guess there's like, you know, I guess uh, one of the great things that I like about about the work that Dave Asprey's done is he has like a spectrum of you know, of like, okay, well, this is good, this is better, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have, like, soft scrambled eggs, like, if you if you cook up some soft scrambled eggs, like, okay, it's better than just, like, hard-boiling your eggs for sure um, with, like, the, the solid yolks. But, like, if you, like, uh, my grandma was, uh, you know, she's really good at making these, like, soft scrambled eggs that taste fantastic, and um, they're, you know, they're, she doesn't really cook them very much, she, and, uh, and, and they taste really good. But if uh, the more you cook it, the more chance that that these really great um, chemicals that we that we like are are going to be uh, the properties of them are going to be altered and they're not going to fit our biochemistry anymore, or, or they will fit our biochemistry, but not in the way we want them to be. And so, like I, I would say, like the best thing you can go on the spectrum is to to lightly cook your whites, and uh, because a lot of people can't. Um, a lot of, you know, like with the, if, if you're sensitive to like the lysosine, you know, some of the things in the whites can, can give you a, a reaction for some people. So if you do like the rocky thing and just like pound, you know, the, the rug, the rug, egg yolks and egg whites, that might not be the best way to go. Um, but if, you know, if you can lightly cook the whites and then, you know, just use the, the yolks like as a dressing on top, that, that might, that might help out. But I mean, it's, it's all, it's all spectrum. It's all about what you want to do. And, you know, you can kind of, like I talked about biohacking earlier, you can biohack it yourself. I mean, make scrambled eggs and see how you feel. And if you, if you feel better than you did when you ate hard boiled eggs and go with that and maybe try something else, you know, establish a baseline and, and then see how you feel differently. Try to quantify it and see what's going on, you know, and, and then you can see what, what's working for you and what's not. Yeah, because sometimes from a digestion standpoint, Jason's right about that. Sometimes some people, as far as eggs, can be hard on digestion if they eat them raw. They do need the proteins to be broken down a little bit for easier assimilation and digestion. I've seen that with a lot of people who eat eggs. They can't tolerate um, raw eggs very well, but they can tolerate you know lightly cooked eggs. Right, yeah. John, now going back to talking about myelination, now if you are uh, eating enough eggs and you are having – sufficient levels of choline in your body and also possibly adding sunflower lecithin as a supplement to help out the myelination of the nerves, what would that actually do? Um, the sunflower lecithin or even if you decided to go with egg yolk lecithin, what they do sell as a supplement too as well, um, all it really does is just add more byproducts as far as phospholatocholine that's actually in the product itself so that your body can, you know, prepare the myelin sheaths to help with the neurons and the nerves and stuff like that. So, I mean, you're going to get more than just phospholipidylcholine. You're going to get the whole spectrum of phospholipids that are actually in the lecithin. Um, it's pretty much giving your body the necessary building products that it could use to make healthy uh, myelin sheaths. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, like, you've got these glands in your brain that make myelin, you know, I mean, there's, there's uh, a joke that goes around in the music community that, like, what's the 
what's the best way to get to Broadway? And that's on Milan Street. You know, you got to have these raw ingredients to be able to insulate these neural pathways. But if you don't have the raw ingredients there, probably not going to happen. You know, I mean, where, where's it going to come from? I mean, you can't, you know, it's, it's just basic, it's just basic physics. If you don't have the raw resources there, you can't create something out of nothing. So, right. um, yeah, you, you need to make sure that it's in your, in your diet someplace. Um, but you know, the, as far as myelin goes, you know, you, you have to do something to justify that production of myelin. Your body's not going to produce any myelin if you're not doing anything. So if you're just, you know, sitting on the couch, just watching whatever latest reality show is coming on the TV and just wasting, wasting your mind. Like you are not probably, you're probably not going to produce a whole heck of a lot of myelin, no matter what you're taking. Yes, that is true. You have to exercise your brain. You have to exercise your brain. Now can physical exercise help that too? help the myelin. Now, are you saying uh, just using the brain in general is actually going to stimulate the growth of more myelin? Is that what I'm getting at? Well, the brain's going to need new, new neurons and new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would assume that would be the reason why, Jason, is the brain needs those extra pathways for the knowledge you've learned. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it's just it's just a basic biological response to stimuli. I mean, if you are firing a neuron over and over and over again from point A to point B, um, your biology is going to compensate by wrapping around myelin, this myelin sheath around the neural pathway to make sure that it fires more efficiently and then it gets from point A to point, a, point B at the same time. I mean, myelin's incredibly important. You look at Einstein, and when they did the autopsy on him, they found all this additional gray matter in his brain, and they're like, whoa, what is all this stuff? And they didn't really figure it out until much later, and they're like, oh, that was myelin. Einstein just had a whole ton of myelin in his brain, and uh, that's what you know led him to these breakthroughs. But like I was talking about earlier in the in the podcast about this Harvard study, you know, it, it used to, you know, it, there used to be a slogan like it took ten thousand hours to master a skill. Ten thousand hours. I mean, you had to stimulate that neuron point A to point B ten thousand different times. So pick any activity or any subject or anything that you have to do, and to get from point A to point B, you have to do that ten thousand times. But there are some. Uh, there are some things you can do to speed that up, and that's kind of what Harvard figured out. You know, you can use music um, to speed that up. I mean, take any elementary school teacher, and if you want to teach them the the fifty states, have them teach, teach them that song, fifty nifty um, United States. You know, you teach them that you get you put it with music, and all of a sudden they learn so much faster. Um, you know, and also physical movement. You're talking about exercise that that does play into it as well. Like if you if you're moving around, if you're doing stuff, it, it's much better. Um, you know, and sort of being creative with the knowledge that you're given that that opens up new pathways and it helps to reinforce the old ones. And you know, this and and the, and the one that I I really want to hammer on is is sort of when the the synergistic effect of feeling like you're a part of a team, you're doing work and you're figuring and you're feeling like, um, you're a part of something greater than yourself. Like I want you to, you see athletes and they have unbelievable amounts of myelin because they, you know, they, they, their bodies are, are, um, you know, they, they, they fine tune their bodies in a way that they have to do these tasks and they have to do them to perfection, um, to, to be able to, you know, to be able to entertain us and be able to justify the salaries that they make. But you watch these athletes and they talk about this flow state where um, everything just seems to be perfect. And to get that, you, t- you sit them down, you talk about the flow state, and they say, yeah, this comes from teamwork. You know, I, I, I can only get in this flow state when I feel like I'm working with all these other people and I'm just filling in the pieces. And this is where two factors come into play 
play, that teamwork, and also they're performing at their absolute highest ability. And when those two things are kicking into effect, you get these people that are myelinating, myelinating at an unbelievable rate. So if you're trying to do stuff on your own or whatever and you know, you're – Antisocial, whatever. I know a lot of us are introverted. I am too, but I, you know, it's it's important to break out of your shell and collaborate with other people. Like you know, even get on the bulletproof forums and just say hi and you know try work with other people, and you'll be amazed. Like I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. Uh, you know, nine months ago, I didn't know squat about nutrition, um, and and now because of, you know, I feel like I was part of a team. You know, and and I was on there participating with with all my friends in the forums. I've learned so much, so much faster because of the synergistic effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible, man. So uh, I want to increase my myelin right now, guys. So what do I do? Well, get some good nutrition. Um, start stimulating your brain. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. Uh, you found that dual NBAC software. Uh, give that a shot. That's, I mean, you'll find it really challenging at first. You might get frustrated with it, but keep it up. Um, now, the thing is, for, for doing a specific task like dual NBAC, like if you do it for more than 10 or 15 minutes, you're going to burn those centers out to where they're just not going to go anymore. So, you know, take it all in stride. Maybe read a book, maybe get outside, do something, you know, find some friends and, and start a project, accomplish something. You know, I mean, just there's a lot of ways to achieve all these four things. Hey, learn a musical instrument. You know, there there's a, there's a guy on the forums, Jason Miller, and he was talking about how he has these technique books for his drum set and he pulls them out and it's like, he says like, this is like mental gymnastics. Like he's having to, you know, to, to do all these crazy rhythms and stuff. Like you don't think that's stimulating his brain. That's crazy stuff that he can do. And uh, there, there's a bunch of other things that you could do. Like even like people always make an excuse like, Oh, I'm not musically inclined or I don't have any talent or whatever. Well, how hard have you really tried? Nobody's born with it. You think about Mozart, um, growing up, well, he was a child prodigy and he achieved, you know, some pretty great things by 11, but how you th- you don't think he put in his 10,000 hours growing up, his dad pretty much sat on him and made him practice all the time, you know, to, to get to that level. So, I mean, if you're not good at music, that doesn't mean you're not going to benefit from it either. Get, you know, whatever you're into, guitar, piano, sing, do something, listen to music, um, go to some concerts, do something, you know, music is going to help your, your myelination too. So, so now does it work inversely to where if you don't do the bad habits and the bad activities anymore that those pathways can change and you can actually, uh, I guess, reduce the amount of focus that your brain puts towards something as a habit? I mean, does it actually change habit formation too, I guess? Yeah, it can. Yeah, okay. yeah, you can create new habits, but like, you know, the, the, the saying about breaking a bad habit, you know, it's several times uh, harder to, to, break a, to break a habit, you know. Because because of that myelination, because it's so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, to break to break something that, that you've myelinated quite a bit, you know, it's it's hard to do. But it, I'm not. It's not impossible. You just have to be mindful of it and, and not go on autopilot. The brain cannot. The brain cannot uh, be a taskmaster for all of these different things. You're only. You can probably only do one higher level function at a time, and uh, in combination with these secondary functions, the rest of it's just being handled upon, uh, handled by all of these other centers that you've already myelinated. I mean, do you really think about how you turn a doorknob? Do you really think about how you walk around, which muscles are contracting? And I mean, no, you don't. You just get up and do it because that's the way you've always been done. Well, what if you've been doing it the wrong way this whole time? You know, what if you have uh, some kind of pathology or something in, in the way you walk or something, and, and that needs to be addressed, and you got to learn the right way to do it. And some people go to a physical therapist, and they spend a lot of money figuring out how to do this stuff the right way. So this myelination is a, is a global effect for you know for your mind and body. 
Yeah, John, so where do we start with this uh, sunf- sunflower lecithin if we are wanting to take this supplement that's been shown to help the myelination of the nerves? Where do we start with this as far um, as dosage and brands? Dosage would be a hard thing. Everybody's different. Um, also, every supplement's different too as well as far as actual lecithin. But I do know that now makes a very good uh, form of sunflower lecithin that I would, you know, I would s- suggest for most people to um, – use now's brand of sunflower lecithin or if they wanted to use um egg yolk lecithin swanson makes actual a decent one um that people can use um i would suggest if you were using the egg yolk lecithin to maybe take two capsules of it a day with uh with with food make sure it's got fat in the meal for help for absorption um but um for now makes the best sunflower and swanson would probably make the best egg yolk Okay, now, I mean, are you going to feel anything different when you are taking a supplement like this? Or, I mean, is it noticeable? Like, say, your, it, your mental focus or anything like that? It won't be like a neurotropic. You won't see that huge of a difference unless you're not used to taking in these phospho, phospholipids and the phosphatidylcholine. If you're very deficient in it, then you should see a difference. It's like people who take B12 uh, supplements. If you're not deficient in B12, you're not really going to see too much of a difference. But if you are deficient in B12, you will see a dramatic change within a couple of days. So it would be the same you know, math formula that you would use for the lecithin. If you're eating a standard American diet, you should see a change within a week or two. But for most people like us who are eating Bulletproof, you may or may not see a uh, – a uh, significant difference unless you're taking a lot of racetam since racetam is still choline you might see a difference in the quality of sleep that you're having um would actually improve because most racetam uh still choline from the body but um for the average bulletproof diet person they wouldn't really see t- you cut out there john and yes it would be very important for them to take it um but for somebody who's eaten cleanly for a while i wouldn't see really much difference Okay, so uh, yeah, you cut out there for a little bit, but uh, basically, uh, if you ha- if you were able to give a perfect day to somebody, an ideal day of, I guess, a bulletproof day, we'll call it as far as diet. What does that look like? I mean, let's for the average, let's do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just a, a typical great, a great way to do a day. For the average person, um, as long as they don't have adrenal fatigue, uh, starting with the bulletproof coffee with the butter and the MCT oil is actually a very good idea. Um, for people with adrenal fatigue, you don't want to set the high of ketones at that point of the day. So I would suggest instead probably eating some pastured eggs with some pastured bacon, mm-hmm. some type of pastured sausage, or even mixing a pastured beef in it too. And uh, getting some carbs, I'd probably say from sweet potatoes in the breakfast in the morning. And then from lunch, um, for most people on Bulletproof Diet, would be some sort of meat um, make sure it's pasture raised and I would definitely, you know, cook it with the lowest temperature you possibly can, you know, without affecting your health and, um, or food safety. And then usually, um, vegetables. And then for dinner, most people usually do a little bit of carbs then in the form of sweet potatoes or a form of, 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 uh, rice, whether it be wild or brown. Um, but if someone has adrenal fatigue, the bulletproof coffee in the morning isn't exactly a good idea. Um, I'd actually limit the total amount of coffee you would drink, period, just because caffeine being detrimental to people with adrenal fatigue. Right, right. What's your all's favorite vegetables if you had to pick? <sighs> broccoli would be mine. Broccoli yeah, and mine too. Broccoli, yeah, broccoli and I like asparagus. I know it's high in, in, in purines, but it still has a lot of beneficial compounds. And I'd, I'd say broccoli would probably be my top one. Do you steam broccoli or how do you prepare it? 
I steam it myself, yes. Okay. And do you ever eat it raw? I mean, is is eating raw nah. broccoli all the time okay? No, the problem That's with raw broccoli good. is is you have all the phytoestrogens and all the anti-nutrients. Uh, steaming inactivates and gets you the good part of the broccoli, like the dim and, and the sulfur. That's the good part of the broccoli. That's what you want from it. But eating raw broccoli isn't necessarily a good idea, especially for men. Men, I would definitely stay away from raw broccoli. Okay, yep. now now how about uh, like something like raw carrots? You know, the most uh, popular thing for people to do is to bring you know the broccoli carrot platter over with the huge thing of ranch dressing, and, and people think that's okay. How do you feel about raw carrots? I don't have a really a problem with raw carrots. I mean, it's as far as digestible abilities, you might have a little bit of problems because carrots being starchy. Yeah. But I mean, as far as anti nutrient capability of a carrot, there's not very very much. I mean, eating a raw carrot is way better than eating a piece of raw broccoli. Okay. Well, guys, we got to wrap this thing up, but man, we could definitely do another two-hour show. I could see this uh, happening again in the future. It's <laughs> awesome to be able to talk with you guys. It's good. Yeah, totally. To you Thanks too, for Adam. inviting us on. Yes, there. thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. And uh, we'll be in touch. And this show will probably be up in a month or so. Like I said, I'm moving to Texas tomorrow, or the actually no Saturday, which is in two days from now. So or three days. Oh wow! And uh, so I'll be busy, but I'll definitely stay stay tuned with you all and uh, and keep you posted on this because a lot of people are going to get a ton of benefit, and we didn't even get into half the stuff I wanted to today. So next time we'll be more in-depth nootropics and stuff like that, hopefully. Thank you for having Yeah, totally. Hey, Evan, thanks so much for having us on here. I appreciate you doing the podcast. Like, just I'm a big fan and it uh, makes the road trips much more fun just to – Listen to all the hard work you put in to do it. Thanks for doing it, man. Yeah, I'm a huge fan as well, Evan. And the amount of information that people can get from the podcast as far as the different spectrums and everything that you just don't hone in on just one subject is very, very important for people's health. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, too. Thank you so much. I'll talk with you guys soon. Thank you, Evan. All right. Sounds great, man. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool Kiss her girl and I never please her She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible clues Why I'm in a tire, gotta watch out, girl Don't wanna see her cry her eyes out, girl Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting Let me be the one that loves you better